science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, activity. What is the relevance of photo 51 in the history of science? And Lavoisier introduced hydrogen and oxygen into a flask and used an electrostatic device to produce a spark that initiated the reaction turning hydrogen and oxygen into water. This was a prototype for what modern device? Those are the questions that are out there for you. You give us a call at 514-790-0800 if you know the answers. And of course, that's also the number to call if you have any science-related question. You can text your answers, comments to 514-800. <clears throat> for those of you who are joining us for the first time, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is in chemistry, and I think that chemistry is the science that ties all the others together. It is the most fundamental one because we describe chemistry as the study of matter and the changes that matter undergoes, and matter, of course, is anything that has weight and occupies space. So it is basically everything. And if you have an understanding of the composition of matter in terms of atoms and molecules, and a basic understanding of how atoms and molecules can join together and react with each other, you have a pretty good feel for what is reasonable and what is not unreasonable uh, in the world. All right, let me just repeat those questions to make sure that you get them. We're looking for the relevance of photo number 51 in the history of science. And we're also looking for the modern device that is based on an experiment that Antoine Lavoisier carried out when he introduced hydrogen and oxygen into a flask and uh, used an electrostatic device to produce a spark. And of course, hydrogen and oxygen then were converted into water. <clears throat> All right, so we'll wait until we get the answers to those. But in the meantime, I want to talk to you about Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. In order for you to really follow this, uh, this argument, I'm going to spell it out for you. So it is S-C-H-O-K-A-K-O-L-A. <clears throat> the Coca-Cola company was not happy. Why? Because back in 1999, a German chocolate manufacturer filed an application in the U.S., no less, to register the name that I just told you, Coca-Cola, as a trademark for its brand of caffeine-rich chocolate. Well, this is a chocolate that is made from cocoa beans. Of course, all chocolate is made from cocoa beans. But it also has coffee beans in it and the fruit of the cola tree. Now, the cola tree uh, grows in Africa, and the, uh, the cola nut is actually the fruit of that tree. It is the stuff that Coca-Cola, of course, uses to add flavor to their beverage, and in this case, it was also in this Coca-Cola. Well, anyway, uh, the Coca-Cola company disputed the registration of Coca-Cola in, in the U.S. on grounds that the name is likely to cause confusion and that it is going to dilute their famous trademark. 
Coca-Cola, of course, is the most recognized trademark in the world. And uh, according to the company, it has long been used and registered for beverages and a wide range of, of products. Well, the patent office upheld that dispute. And uh, the, uh, the trademark for Coca-Cola uh, was denied. But therein lies a very interesting story. It was back in 1935 uh, that chocolatier Theodore Hildebrand in Germany first formulated this novel form of chocolate, the Coca-Cola, with the idea of producing an ideal stimulant for German athletes. The Berlin Olympics were just around the corner. Of course, that was 1936. And uh, the Germans, of course, were bent on showing the world that they were superior to everyone else. And Hildebrand thought that by doping up these chocolates with caffeine, he would give an added boost to the athletes. The popularity of uh, Coca-Cola increased dramatically uh, during the Second World War. Why? Because this chocolate was provided to Luftwaffe pilots. It was also given to submarine crews. It was given also to foot soldiers. Why? To induce wakefulness and alertness. And of course, we know that caffeine can do that. But interestingly enough, the prevalence and the popularity of Coca-Cola led to a myth. And I've seen this myth repeated in many, many accounts and in historical articles and books. The myth is that the real reason that these chocolates, which were colloquially known as Flieger Schokolade, which translates in English to aviator chocolate, the myth is that these chocolates were so prized because what they actually contained were amphetamines. No. That is just not true. The stimulant effect of this chocolate was due completely to caffeine. And there wasn't even that much caffeine in there. The a serving contained about as much as a strong cup of coffee. Of course, I'm sure that there were uh, soldiers and pilots uh, who swallowed more than just the four little wedges, which were deemed to be the single serving. So they probably did get a good dose of, of caffeine. So anyway, while uh, the Flieger Chocolade, as it was called, never contained amphetamines, what is true, that amphetamines were widely used during the World War II, both by the Germans and the Allies. Now, amphetamine has a very interesting history and goes back to 1887. Now, amphetamine is not a natural substance. It does not exist in nature. But why was uh, Romanian chemist Lazar Edelanu, working in Germany at the time, why was he so interested in making a synthetic version of uh, uh, a molecule that existed in nature? And that molecule was ephedrine. And what uh, Edelanu was looking for was an improved version of this. Now, ephedrine is a naturally occurring uh, component of the ephedra plant. And uh, that had been isolated just two years earlier in 1885. And it had a long history of use 
as an aid for respiratory problems, as a stimulant. Ma Wang is the way that it was referred to in traditional Chinese medicine. And it's been used in traditional Chinese medicine for some 5,000 years. Of course, they didn't know what the active ingredient was. Um, they knew that uh, if they just made a brew of the leaves of the plant or consumed the, the roots or, or, or the stalk ground up of the plant, then this would have some benefits on, on health. But uh, what uh, uh, Dr. Edelanu was interested in was uh, seeing whether or not he could make an improved version. I mean, this is often the case. When a plant component has some sort of medicinal value, then chemists go on to explore the possibility of changing the molecular structure to find something that is even better, more effective, maybe fewer side effects. And that is exactly what Dr. Edelano was attempting to do when he synthesized amphetamine. But he didn't pursue this any further. Why? Because his interest switched. He became interested in refining crude oil and actually developed a, a, a widely used technique for that. And uh, he got sidetracked and he failed to pursue the uh, uh, amphetamine synthesis any further. He did not really investigate uh, in any kind of depth whether or not it would have beneficial uh, qualities. That was left up to an American chemist, Gordon Alice, in 1932, who was able to patent uh, his version of amphetamine. He was unaware of Edelano's earlier work, and Alice independently synthesized amphetamine, again for the same reason, trying to improve on the action of ephedrine. He first tested this compound on guinea pigs, and then, believe it or not, he became his own guinea pig. He noted that his nasal congestion, which had been plaguing him, disappeared, and he experienced a feeling of well-being. Well, he then approached the Philadelphia pharmaceutical company, Smith, Klein & French, about a partnership, and they agreed. And soon, Benzedrine entered the marketplace as a treatment for decongestion and asthma in the form of an inhaler. So Benzedrine was the Smith, Klein & French company's uh, trade name for amphetamine. <clears throat> it wasn't long, though, before the drug attained a reputation as a stimulant especially after it was used by American athletes at the Berlin Olympics, <laughs> the same Olympics for which the chocolate that I told you about uh, was designed, uh, hoping that its caffeine content would boost German athletes. But at this point, the Americans had Benzedrine, which was a bigger boost than caffeine. Anyway, German chemist Friedrich Hauschild at the Temmler Working Pharmaceutical Company was aware of the use of Benzedrine at the Olympics. And he tried for one upmanship, and he synthesized a very similar compound called methamphetamine, which was a close cousin of amphetamine. And uh, that compound actually had been made from ephedrine back in 1919 by Akira Ogata in Japan, but it was Hauschild who developed a method to produce this on a large scale under the name Pervitin. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check for traffic and we'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. 
Before we get to the lines, uh, let me just finish off my story about uh, the history of uh, methamphetamine. And I got to a point where I was telling you that the Germans developed pervitin, as it was called. And it was available to general public and pharmacies, but it was on the battlefield that it would make its mark. Well, Nazi ideology considered the use of social drugs as a sign of weakness and moral decay. So they wanted nothing to do with, with you know, uh, uh, morphine, alcohol. But pervitin was an exception because unlike those drugs, uh, methamphetamine was not considered to be uh, for escapist pleasure, <clears throat> but rather to achieve physical and mental superiority. And that, of course, was very much in line with what the Nazis wanted. Uh, they thought that methamphetamine-doped uh, soldiers would require less sleep, fight longer and harder. And that indeed was true. Uh, it was one of the weapons that the Germans used in the Blitzkrieg, the lightning quick strike that often would catch the enemy off guard. And when the Germans invaded Poland, their troops were energized with pervitin. And uh, when they went on to invade uh, France, uh, pushing through um, uh, what was thought to be very, very uh, difficult terrain to, uh, to traverse, the Ardennes Forest, the Allies, uh, when they heard that the Germans were going to attack, they thought they had enough time to reposition their forces, but turned out not to be the case because the Germans were on Pervitin. And they didn't sleep. The tanks kept advancing for three days, day and night. And um, in fact, uh, Churchill himself uh, said that he was absolutely dumbfounded by what the uh, Germans had been uh, uh, able to do. Anyway, uh, by 1941, the Germans cut back on their use of pervitin because uh, side effects like, like high blood pressure, heart attacks, uh, addiction cropped up. But the Americans kept using Benzedrine um, uh, during the war, so did the Brits. And in Japan, where the drug was produced as Philippon, it was issued to kamikaze pilots. And even after the Second World War, the US military in the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Persian Gulf War, used uh, methamphetamines to decrease fatigue. Of course, uh, uh, these days we hear most about methamphetamine, you know, like, like in Breaking Brad, Bad, the, the TV show, uh, about clandestine labs that, that uh, produce billions of these tablets uh, in the form of crystal meth that, that can be smoked. And this, uh, this is associated with crime, medical problems, all kinds, and it's one of the curses of, of society. Uh, so while... Uh, uh, methamphetamine has played a very interesting role in history. The role that is now playing is one that um, I, I think we need to, to eliminate because it is undermining the health of the public. As far as the Coca-Cola goes, the chocolate that I told you about, it is, believe it or not, still produced in Germany. Of course, because its trade name was not approved in North America, it's not sold here in, in stores. But in Germany, <clears throat> You drop into a gas station and you will find uh, it because it keeps drivers uh, awake. And uh, if you really want to try it, I do, uh, you can order it on the Internet. Of course, you can order almost anything on the Internet. And uh, I found it on Amazon. I ordered it. 
uh, let me tell you, it is not cheap. It is much more expensive than drinking a cup of coffee. But uh, I just want to, uh, to have a souvenir of this interesting uh, historical item. And uh, when I get it, uh, I, I guess I will open the box and give it a taste. Uh, but I, I will put it in my little museum that I have here uh, in my office where I collect all kinds of uh, historical memorabilia. All right. Uh, let me go to Gary, who may have an answer to my question about Photograph 51. Gary. Yeah, I think it's Jerry, if it's me. Is it? Yes, Jerry? Okay, Jerry, okay, whoever yeah, has an fine. answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I just wonder. I want to make sure it was me you're yeah. speaking to. Yeah, uh, Photo 51 was the first picture of a strand of DNA by Rosalind Franklin. Right. And what what's the sort of the, <clears throat> what can I say, the unfortunate connection of Photo 51 and Rosalind Franklin? That I don't know. All right. So let me give you a little background on this story. You can sit back yeah. and, and listen. Okay. Uh, Photo 51 is actually an X-ray diffraction image of, uh, of uh, DNA fiber. And that picture was taken not by Rosalind Franklin, it was taken by Raymond Gosling, who was a graduate student working under the supervision of Rosalind Franklin. And that was in 1952, King's College in London. And uh, the whole group was under the direction of Sir John Randall. Anyway, this image was tagged photo 51 because it was the 51st diffraction photograph that Franklin and Gosling had taken. And it was critical evidence in identifying the structure of DNA. As historians of science have re-examined the period during which this image was obtained, considerable controversy has arisen over both the significance of the contribution of this image to the work of uh, Watson and Crick, as well as the methods by which they obtained the image. It turns out that Franklin had been hired independently of uh, Morris Wilkins, who took over as Gosling's new supervisor and showed this 50, photo 51 to Watson and Crick without Franklin's knowledge. And whether Franklin would have deduced the structure of DNA on her own from her own data, had Watson and Crick not obtained Gosling's image, that's a hotly debated topic. Also hotly debated is why Rosalind Frankel, Franklin was not part of the Nobel Prize. In 1962, that prize in physiology and medicine went to Watson, Crick, and, and Wilkins, who was the supervisor of the lab, and it was not awarded to Franklin. Now, it is true that Franklin had died four years earlier, and today the rule is that the Nobel Prize cannot be awarded posthumously. But that rule did not exist at that time. So the committee could have chosen to posthumously award it to Rosalind Frankel. Interestingly enough, also Gosling's work was not cited by the prize committee, even though he was the one who had actually taken the picture. So it is indeed a very famous picture, and you find it in you know, all the textbooks because it was a key to unraveling the so-called uh, double helix structure of DNA. And DNA, as we know, is the molecule that is the blueprint of all life. And um, obviously, uh, that paper that was published in, in 1953 about its molecular structure is one of the most important papers ever published in the uh, history of, uh, of science. And uh, photo 51 is what made it possible. But uh, I think it is really unfortunate that uh, Rosalind 
Frankel's contribution to this has not been uh, respected as much as it, uh, it should have been because it was you know, her technique and her ideas to take these pictures. And it's unlikely that without that photo 51, uh, Watson and Crick would have solved the, uh, the problem of the three-dimensional structure of DNA. All right, anyway, that indeed was a correct answer. I'm still looking for the answer to the question of Lavoisier introducing hydrogen and oxygen, sparking it to make water. Uh, what prototype uh, modern device was that for? Okay, give me an answer. If you have it, 514-800 or phone us at 514-790-0800. Listen to Dr. Joshua. We will check CTV News right now. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Let me replace the question that was answered by the following. The first passengers ever to experience this mode of transportation were a rooster, a duck, and a sheep. What mode of transportation was that? 514-790-0800 or text us at 514-800. And I think we have Jean-Guy on the line. Jean-Guy. Yes, hi. Is the uh, answer to the other question, the motor being developed by Ballard Power Systems? Uh, no. No, it isn't. Okay, thanks very much. So we still have that question out there. Uh, Lavoisier combined oxygen and hydrogen to form water. Uh, what modern device was that the prototype for? And the other question is about the mode of transportation that was first experienced by a rooster, duck, and a sheep. What, uh, what was that? Okay, Doris, I think, has a question. Yeah, thank you. Uh, no, I don't have any answer. I just want to ask you, please, uh, how important is the expiry date on the eggs? <laughs> like, uh, if I have that they had uh, six days ago, if I boil, hard boil them, it's still safe? Yes, it is. Uh, the expiration date on, on eggs is, is very conservative. Eggs will last quite a long time, much longer than people think. In fact, in Europe, eggs are not even kept in the refrigerator. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you, you can uh, use the eggs uh, uh, yeah. well, well after that date. Okay. That's okay. a question like, like in the good old times. <laughs> yeah. out. Spots, out. expiry about that. Thank you very much. Sorry I don't okay. have any answer for your question. Okay. You're, you're very welcome. All right, so we're still uh, waiting for that uh, that answer, and it has come, actually. It has come by a text message, and indeed, that was the hot air balloon. The first passengers were a rooster, a duck, and a sheep. All right, obviously, there's a story behind that. We go back to 1783. The Montgolfier brothers launched a balloon. It was made of linen and paper. And unfortunately, uh, at the end, the sheep broke the leg on broke its leg on, on on landing. Anyway, so it was actually on September 18 of that year uh, that 
the first living creatures other than birds or insects lifted off from the earth for the first time. Now that's quite a statement. I guess there must have been people before who were attempting to jump off cliffs with wings and stuff like that, but they didn't make it. Anyway, Joseph Michel and Jacques Etienne Montgolfier had built uh, uh, this uh, balloon, rather simple device, uh, and it had a wicker basket suspended underneath, capable of carrying the, the sheep, the duck, and the rooster. And the brothers had become interested in air travel after reading Joseph Priestley's book on different kinds of air, and they began to experiment with balloons. In 1782, they constructed a silk balloon with an opening that was filled with hot air generated by burning chopped hay and wool. Actually, the Montgolfiers thought that it was smoke that lifted the balloon and looked to burn materials that would produce the thickest smoke. So they, they made an observation, but actually came to the wrong conclusion. Uh, at one time, they even experimented with burning old shoes and rotten meat because those produced a lot of smoke. Anyway, the, the uh, demonstration that is in question here with the, the, the animals was to be carried out at Versailles in front of the king and the queen, who actually never saw the results as they fled the scene due to the horrific smell that was being produced. But by the time the first trio of aeronauts was launched, the Montgolfiers had figured out the hot, that it was hot air that made the balloons rise. So, you know, they, they stopped experimenting with producing more smoke. Anyway, uh, the, uh, uh, the three uh, adventurers returned to, to Earth. Uh, apparently, the chicken may have suffered a broken wing. Uh, and uh, there's also the story of the sheep breaking its leg. Uh, but there are different versions of of the story. Anyway, it wasn't much later, on November 21st of 1873, that humans followed in the animal's footsteps, as two men made a seven-mile voyage in a Montgolfier, as balloons be, uh, became to be called. Uh, they went up to an altitude of uh, 3,000 feet. And so the age of air travel had begun. All right, given the fact that... Uh, this uh, question was answered. Uh, I will give you yet another fresh question. Okay, listen to this one very carefully. I'm asking to what the following description refers. All right, here we go. The shallow trenches with a depth between 10 and 15 centimeters and an average width of 30 to 40 centimeters were made by removing the reddish-brown iron oxide-coated pebbles that cover the surface of the desert. When this gravel is removed, the light-colored clay earth exposed in the bottom of the trench contrasts sharply in color and tone with the surrounding land surface, producing visible lines. Okay, I want to know to what that refers. And of course, it does refer to a very famous phenomenon. Give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text us at 514-800. Okay, Brian. Joe, uh, huh? your, your, your questions are getting easier, I think. Um, I did before, the, the answer to the question you're looking for is a fuel cell. Yes, um, it is. But on the other hand, do you have any comments uh, concerning any advances in high-capacity, high-power capacitors? 
Uh, is that something you're familiar with at all? No, I know that capacitors are getting better, but other than that, no. Okay. I don't know. But uh, yes, you, you are, of course, right. It is the fuel cell. And uh, a fuel cell is, is a device into which you pump hydrogen in one electrode and oxygen to the other electrode, where they combine, they, uh, they form water, uh, but they also uh, generate a flow of electrons. And uh, that, of course, means that you can run an electric motor and uh, fuel cells uh, can be used to power an electric vehicle. And uh, it was really the Lavoisier idea of uh, generating water through the combination of uh, hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, that, of course, is the exact reversal of electrolysis. Electrolysis is the process by which you uh, pass an electric current through water to separate it into hydrogen and oxygen. And in a fuel cell, it's the opposite. The hydrogen and oxygen are made to recombine to form water, and uh, that also generates an electric uh, current. Brian, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Uh, you have All right. Since, since you were complaining, since you were complaining that my questions are getting easier, okay? <laughs> All right. Let me let me let I, me see. I have one other. I have one other comment. Do you, do you think that there's going to be significant progress, or is there any way to reduce the actual cost of generating hydrogen? Because after all, if they're going to yes. use a fuel cell in 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 transportation, right now, yes. the cost of generating hydrogen is significant. Absolutely. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of research being carried out on that. Uh, Hydrogen right now is made from methane, from natural gas, by reacting it with water at high temperature. And this, of course, is not a great way of making hydrogen because it also generates carbon dioxide at the same time, which you don't want. So the way that we want to make hydrogen is to electrolyze water. When you uh, separate water into hydrogen and oxygen, you don't form any carbon dioxide. All you do is you form water. And uh, that, of course, is is quite innocuous. Now, some water vapor will go into the atmosphere, and water vapor is a greenhouse gas, but nowhere near as effective as carbon dioxide. But anyway, it doesn't have to be water vapor. It can be cooled into liquid water. So, you know, producing hydrogen uh, by electrolysis is, is the way to go. But the question is, where are we going to get the, the energy to electrolyze the water? And the answer to that, hopefully, is going to be either uh, solar power, wind power, tidal power, or most effectively, it is nuclear. But people, unfortunately, oppose nuclear uh, because they really don't understand the technology involved. And when people don't understand, they automatically oppose. So that's a very good point about hydrogen, but they are finding effective ways of, of making it. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. And a very interesting question uh, from Nick about whether or not Jesse Owens may have used Benzedrine. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that would take a bit of research to find out. I mean, I've, I've not seen that that claimed, but there, there really was no stigma attached in those days to uh, to benzedrine, and um, it's it's certainly possible that uh, 
he would have used it. I mean, many athletes at the 36 uh, Olympics did, and you know it wasn't even frowned upon at that time. So I don't know if, if Jesse Owens uh, did, but uh, uh, let me say, I, I will try to dig uh, into that. Uh, certainly, it's not something that I have seen uh, documented uh, anywhere, but uh, it, it is a possibility. Okay, I think we have William on the line. <clears throat> good, evening, good afternoon, Doctor. Hi. Hi. Listen, uh, is that the Nazca lines? Yes, it is the Nazca lines. Exactly. Very good. Can I ask? Can I ask you a question? The, yes. the question about the hydrogen and oxygen uh, mm -hmm. was unanswered. Yes. Yes, the fuel cell is a yeah, modern but, device. But that, that can't be because in a fuel cell there is no uh, there is no spark produced to to ignite the hydrogen and the oxygen. Only no, no, no. But the, no, but the the idea that hydrogen and oxygen can unite to form water. That's that's that was the key, right? That's oh, the I key. See. That's the key to the fuel cell, not not what you actually have to do to make it happen, but that that can happen. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So let let me just talk a little bit about you know the answer to the the question because uh, you know what I was after as I described these trenches, depth of ten to fifteen centimeters, width of thirty to forty centimeters, and. Uh, uh, they are actually seen in the Peruvian desert, in the desert, in the Nazca desert, and they are known as the Nazca lines. And the lines are, are, are not painted lines. They're actually, uh, as I said, trenches, and they're made by taking off the gravel from the surface so that you see the clay underneath it. And uh, the figures that, that were produced between about 500 BC and 500 AD are quite spectacular, and some of them are are are, are like uh, uh, three to four hundred meters long, giant figures, and they have uh, basically not eroded because the desert there is very dry. There's virtually no wind. The climate is stable, and the lines have been preserved. And these figures are are very complex. Uh, there are geometric shapes. There there are animals. There's a hummingbird, a spider, a fish a monkey, a dog, a cat, and even a human. And then there are flowers and, and trees, all these giant shapes. And there's a lot of mystery about this, about why the natives did this. I mean, you know, we're talking between 500 BC and 500 uh, AD. Why did they do this? And uh, the most common answer to that, uh, that question is that uh, they did it to try to please the gods that were you know, up up in, in the heavens. Although there was another interesting, you know, alternative answer that was posed by uh, Eric von Daniken in, in, uh, in his classic book, Chariots of the Gods, in which he maintained that uh, uh, these lines were guided by extraterrestrials uh, who had taught the natives how to do this. And, and the explanation there is that since these are visible only from the air, like, you know, when you're standing there in the desert, you, you don't know what these figures, what shape they make. So why would they have made these figures in the desert that nobody can see except from the air? So von Daniken's idea was that uh, uh, somehow this was guided by extraterrestrials. Well, of course, I think that's a lot of silliness. 
Uh, indeed, it turns out that when you go on the surrounding hills and mountains, you can actually see the, the pattern and you can make out the, the figures. Uh, but they were made very cleverly, you know, uh, by um, uh, first making just a small version and then using ropes to, to extend it. Uh, you know, just like, you know, those, the children's uh, uh, drawing devices where you can make a small sketch and then you can uh, blow it up in size by using, uh, you know, an arm that moves a, a pen. So uh, uh, there's no great mystery about how they were done. Uh, the, uh, the more interesting thing is why they were done. You know, why did they produce these things? And uh, it was probably some sort of religious significance trying to please the gods. Anyway, they are very, very interesting. And uh, of course, they have become a big tourist attraction in, in, in Peru. Uh, but uh, they also have to be protected from, you know, tourists trying to pick out uh, souvenirs, pebbles, etc. Uh, et uh, but uh, if you go online, of course, you can see all of the, the classic pictures of the uh, Nazca uh, lines. As many of you know, uh, for I think more than 30 years now, on the first Monday of uh, every month, I've been giving a public lecture at the Cote St. Luke Public Library, now known as the Eleanor London Public Library. I actually started those lectures at the behest of Eleanor London, who uh, was the librarian at the time, responsible for building the library, responsible for making it very, very popular. Unfortunately, she is no longer uh, uh, with us. But uh, my contribution there has been uh, going on. And um, uh, tomorrow is the first, uh, well, actually, it's not the first because Labor Day was the first Monday, but uh, uh, we have postponed this month to tomorrow. And I will be giving a talk. And of course, unfortunately, because of COVID, these now have to be via Zoom. But that has some benefits. It means that anyone anywhere in the world can join in. And uh, my topic tomorrow is um, how to distinguish facts from the drivel that is out there, all the misinformation, disinformation, all the drivel, which we are accosted on a regular uh, basis. So that's what we're going to talk about. That's at 2 o'clock. And in order to, to join, all you have to do is go to the Eleanor London uh, Public Library uh, website, and you will see the link there. And you can just tune in at uh, uh, 2 o'clock tomorrow, and we'll uh, discuss uh, some of the interesting drivel that is out there. Uh, I can't believe that we've gone through a whole show without any reference to COVID. Uh, but uh, I think sometimes we need a little relief from that. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not with us. Of course it is. And I really don't want to, to uh, leave you without uh, uh, urging you to get the vaccine because that is the only way uh, that we can uh, dig out of this uh, uh, situation. Of course, it's not the perfect solution. There is no perfect solution. This virus will likely be with us for a very long time, if not forever. But what we do know is that uh, the more people get vaccinated, the more people will be kept out of the hospitals. Uh, more than 95% of all people in hospitals, especially in the ICUs in, in North America now, are unvaccinated people. So how much motivation do you need? Uh, while it is not the ultimate answer, it is the answer that we have for now. The more people get vaccinated, the more likely we are 
going to succeed in getting back to some degree of normalcy. We are smack out of time. Once more, the hour has flown by, but fret not. We will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.